You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 159 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, Vince Pissarro. Check out his new book, Crazy Sorrow. I'm not a fan of Facebook, but just like everyone, I'm on Facebook. And a memory came up uh, from a Drinks with Tony episode that I did exactly 10 years ago, back when I was on Thursday nights on Radio Valencia in San Francisco. And, oh, do do I miss those years on Radio Valencia and even the years before that when uh, I was on Pirate Cat Radio in San Francisco. And I've only been numbering the episodes of uh, Drinks with Tony since I rebooted the show in October 2018. And that was after a five-year hiatus. Um, so I'm really glad I got to, I restarted the show mostly because I get to have great conversations with really cool writers every week. Uh, but the real start actually was made in a decision of utter despair. I, I just written a feature film. It had, it had its release. I felt okay for a bit. And then I felt like nothing, you know, like a lot of this writing stuff, uh, that happens, the successes. It, it, it feels great, and then it's the vacuum just goes whew. But I couldn't get out of the depression. And um, one day I was walking in Los Feliz. Actually, no, I was, I was slumped over and dragging my feet in sorrow, uh, wondering how could I break out of the depression I was in. Because the depression wasn't stopping. It was like enveloping me, and it was kind of spiraling. Then I got the idea to restart Drinks with Tony as a podcast. Just start doing what I did five years before and see what happens. And now I'm lucky. Here we are, episode 159, as well as being broadcast in Santa Cruz on KPCR 101.9 FM. The point of all this, I guess what I'm saying is depression sometimes works. Uh, it makes us do something to get out of the funk. Maybe depression like is urging us to ask ourselves, what should I do different? Not that depression goes away just as a poof. It's, you know, I've, I'm, I've, I'm in, I've been in and out of it for decades. Anyway, <laughs> now on to a, another great conversation with a fantastic author. Hi, I'm Vince Passaro. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today, we have Vince Pissarro on the show. His novel is called Crazy Sorrow, and it's out now. It's out as of September 2021. Vince, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah. What's well, cross-country. I know. I, and, you know, for uh, odd for a New Yorker, I know how to say um, uh, Santa Cruz. I, I know how to put the accent on the first syllable. Oh, really? Oh, because they usually say Santa Cruz? Well, they say like Santa Clara, you know what I mean? Or right. Santa Ana, but it's Santa Cruz. Yeah. So, and, and I learned that in graduate school from a writer who is from out there, a very fine writer named Bruce Craven, who has a novel just out actually also. Oh, really? And he's a Santa Cruz boy. But I, I know this airs on the Santa Cruz radio station. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And... um the uh and a lot of people this blows my mind because people they and as a san franciscan um 
when you say San Francisco, you say San Francisco, you never say San Fran. And, and I hear San Fran, like I'm in Los Angeles now. So if I'm listening to a baseball game, they're like, well, we got to watch out for San Fran because the giants are coming. And I'm like, it's, it's nobody's fault, but the announcers and the media, because all they hear is San Fran. They don't know until they get to San Francisco that it's San Francisco or the city. And that's kind of it. The um, who's going to win that pennant race. Oh my God. Yeah. The giants are playing after we record. So I'm, I'm planning, I'm planning my life around giants games. I I mean, the two teams have these unbelievable records. It's insane. I, I I just was looking at it yesterday. Yeah. Um, But uh, you know, it'll be an interesting uh, race to the end. I do like because you're East Coast. Does it, I, I have a feeling that people on the East Coast don't really follow the West Coast teams too much. There's there's not much of a uh, and I tell me if I'm wrong. You may recall that those two teams were once close to our hearts over here. Right, right. Um, there's a funny old joke about uh, uh, was it Walter O'Malley who moved the team? I can't remember which 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 owner it was who moved the Dodgers. Um, I don't know why I'm blanking on it. I think it was Walter O'Malley. And, and there was a joke that when uh, you have uh, Hitler, Stalin, and uh, Walter O'Malley in a room, you have a gun with two bullets. What do you do? And it's, the answer was shoot O'Malley twice. <laughs> um, it's a, it's, it, it's a thing. It was yeah, it's a time. thing. It, it really is a thing. I was talking to someone um, who... Uh, what, who's still um, he's a Dodgers fan, but um, there's people who do not like to acknowledge Los Angeles Dodgers. It is always the Brooklyn Dodgers for them. Oh my God. That's, that's too intense. I, <laughs> just, my friends and I were just reminiscing though, about the uh, anniversary passed in August of the Johnny Roseboro Juan Marichal incident. Now, are you too young for that? I don't know. You might be. I don't know uh, what the incident is. I know Juan Marichal. I know who that is. Juan Marichal. Uh, and Sandy Koufax were going against mm-hmm. each other, and uh, Marischal was pitching uh, under people's chins, you know. Uh-huh. And then Koufax was called upon to retaliate, and and the two benches were getting very tense. And Roseboro um, was the catcher for the Dodgers, and he was um, black. In this is 1966, maybe seven, six, seven, five, six, seven. And um, uh, and Marshall was from the Caribbean. I don't maybe Dominican Republic. I can't maybe Panama. I can't remember, but he was uh, a Latin American dude. And uh, he they said something. It went. They went. Marshall came up to the plate, and uh, and um, they they had some exchange. And and then Roseboro stood up and sort of faced him off. And Marshall hit him over the head with a bat. knocked him cold with a bat over his wow yeah this was major major and it's like you'd be suspended for two years now if you did that he got suspended for eight games um and with a seventeen thousand dollar fine or something yeah roseboro forgave him after a certain number of years and they would they did little appearances together and stuff wow uh, it was considered and the two benches cleared and it was an enormous fight obviously and it was a very famous incident and the anniversary, but it's a, it's a Dodgers giants, you know, I mean, it was really tense and, you know, yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of joy of it. Cause it's uh, the, the Los Angeles, I mean, the Dodgers and I'm in LA. So 
uh, you know, I'm the enemy down here. <laughs> so, are, you still, are you still a Giants fan? Oh, oh yeah. Like I, I grew up, you know, a few miles away from Candlestick Park. Yeah, That's, I, I didn't know there was anything other than the, I didn't even know who the Oakland A's were when I was a kid. I was like, what, who are they? They're, 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 that's, that's across the Bay. That they could have be funny Japan. colors, you know, they had beards like yours and funny colors. Yeah. Uh, well, now I'm for the team. What? No, I, 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 uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. You just, you kind of get stuck with it when you're young, you know, that like, because yes. you're, you're a New Yorker. So who did you get stuck with as in, who- in 1964? Yeah. I was seven years old and I was watching, I was at my uh, aunt and uncle's house in Connecticut and he was a diehard Yankee fan. And I was watching the world series and I became a baseball fan and a Yankee fan. The Yankees lost that series in seven games to the Cardinals. And I, I figured out much later, many of the years later, not even that long ago, that this was really a face-off between two very different cultures and teams. The, the Cardinals were a bunch of black radicals, actually. I mean, they were really kind of cool. They had um, Luke Brock. They had Kurt Flood, who changed baseball, essentially. He, he lost his career uh, suing for free agency, eventually winning, but too late for him. Right. Um, they had uh, Bob Gibson, who was like an assassin on the mound. It was a very black team and it was very military. Bill White, who was later the commissioner of the National League, but was always a kind of radical guy. Um, and uh, and then the Yankees like. Um, were Republicans, you know, essentially. I mean, they, they were like a Republican team. I didn't know any of this, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, the Cardinals won in seven. It was a really brilliant series. One of the great series is actually. That was the one where Ken Boyer hit a grand slam, I think. He was the third baseman for the Cardinals. His brother, Cleet Boyer, was the third baseman for the Yankees. And Cleet patted Ken's ass as he went by, having hit a grand slam home run. Just knocked it with his glove like that. Uh-huh. Didn't say anything. Didn't make any show. It just hit him. This was a scandal. The New York press went berserk about the disloyalty of of him congratulating his brother. Wow! Slam home run. Yeah, yeah. It was a great series. So anyway, that's when I started. That was a Yankee so, fan. And in fact, the Yankees' uh, appearance in the '76 World Series is in the book. They got <laughs> creamed by the Cincinnati Reds. Yeah. Yeah, um, and. And uh, I, I got another uh, baseball question because because we are talking about your book, but at the same time, We're in Connecticut, there's a the, the Connecticut interests me so much because there's a boundary. There's part Yankees and part Boston Red Sox, right? You you cannot be a fan of both. Mm. You have to have no. your loyalty to one. No, no. I admired the Red Sox in the '60s uh, and '70s. They were really a good team. I never liked Carlton Fisk, but. Uh, Carl Yastrzemski, I thought, was an amazing guy. And uh, they had some pitchers who were tremendous also. Um, well, in the book, it actually comes up late in the book uh, that uh, our main character, George, who grew up in Connecticut, um, grew up uh, where the Connecticut River comes down to the Atlantic. And the Connecticut River actually is a was considered, I don't know if it's still true, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, a linguistic divide where the New England accent begins going north, where the Middle Atlantic accent begins going south. And so you're still, I think there are people that are west of there who consider themselves in New England and Boston fans, but basically Connecticut is, is half in New England and half not. 
you know, yeah. that's what you're detecting there. Yeah. And it's a, uh, and, and where did you grow? Did you, you grew up in New York, right? I grew up on Long Island, actually. My on Long Island? My father both grew up in the city. My what, mother um, in Brooklyn, my father in Far Rockaway, Queens. Oh, wow. Okay. And then growing up in Long Island, I'm, I'm, I'm just starting to get familiar with the geography out there. How far out in Long Island were you? I grew up in the town that Great Gatsby set in mm-hmm. on the North Shore, right uh-huh. outside of Queens. Uh, it's Great Neck is the name of the town. Um, he called it West Egg. And then because the, the two peninsulas uh, of Great Neck and Port Washington are shaped like eggs. So one was West Egg and one was East Egg. Okay. The novel. And um, and uh, Ring Lardner and he lived there. Ring Lardner's grandniece was the lifeguard at our pool when, when I was young and was phenomenally good looking. She ended up a newscaster out where you are. Um, and I think her name is Lardner, actually. Huh. Lisa Lardner or Laura Lardner, something like that, two L's. Yeah. Um, so it was a town that I was very thrilled to discover, 16 or so, had a literary history, although you'd never know it living there. Were you, um, were you kind of a literary bent at that point? Were you a reader and wanting to be a writer? I had just started becoming so, yes. Mm -hmm. I I went to um, an independent bookstore opened up in Great Neck when I was maybe 16 or 17. And before that, there's just been, you know, the jobs that exist everywhere, chains that sold, you know, best stores. They didn't, they weren't like real bookstores. Right. It was like almost going to the airport bookstore kind of thing. Yeah, it was very, they were very much like airport bookstores. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a real indie store and the two owners were this young couple who were kind of hippies and I got to talk to them and, you know, and, and I was just so taken with this whole world and, um, and I had started to become interested in poetry. So I went into the store and I bought four books of poetry. Um, and again, I'm going to date myself here, but uh, there was a show called the Waltons. Yeah. And it had a, 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 a a young guy, the, the whole oldest brother on it was named John Boy. And he was played by an actor named Richard Thomas, who's still out there doing good work. And um, John Boy wanted to go off to college, even though they were living in the Appalachians and had no money and, you know, were dirt poor. He wanted to go to college and become a writer, which I found very glamorous. And it turned out that um, Richard Thomas, the actor, wrote poetry. Oh, so you so what the poet one of the poetry books was actually written by him. That was your was first purchase. Another of the poetry books was written by Leonard Nimoy. No way. I knew, yeah. Nimoy was a poet also. Yeah. And then the other two were written by these poets that I had heard about in a Dylan song, Ezra Pound and T. S. Eliot. So I got the selected poems of Ezra Pound, uh, and selected poetry was the name of the book by Eliot. Um and Leonard Nimoy and Richard Thomas, and I took him home. And it did not take me long to discover that I and I did not understand the Elliot. And I did understand the Tom Richard Thomas, and I didn't understand Nimoy, but I knew at a deep level how vastly better the Pound and Elliot were than the Nimoy and Thomas were. And that was sort of this starting moment, you know, of literary consciousness, I think, for me. I mean, another moment was 
I was about 12, I read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And it was the first really actually fine literary book that I ever read. And maybe I was, yeah, I think I was 12. And, and I got to the end and I started over again. It was the first book I ever did that with. And I haven't done it with that many ever since. But there's this exciting moment at the end of Tom Sawyer where you turn the page, the last page, and there's this afterward. And Twain says, well, you know, if you write a book about a young man, you know where to end it. You end it with marriage. Uh, but if you write a book about a boy, it's not so clear where to end. So I'm going to end here, you know. And I was so uh, 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 kind of electrified by this moment where the author stepped out, the author whom you could feel on the page. You know, there's a sensibility in Twain that is unmistakable. And you could feel him there. And then suddenly he steps out from behind the curtain and says, you know, here I am. And this was a book that I wrote. And here's where I'm choosing to end the book that I wrote. And so there was this authorship, this author and authorship thing that I was introduced to. And that was a very big effect on me. And then the, the, the four books of poetry. And then, and then I went to college and I discovered, you know, social class and history and ideas and philosophy and literature and all of that. But I, I was pretty innocent of much of that. So it's so intriguing. There was... Um... Yeah, because when I first, I mean, I didn't really discover novels until I was in my 20s. And that was like, I was kind of the first time that I felt like I was having a conversation with people mm -hmm. who understood me. Right, um, exactly. That, that, and it was just like, oh, wait, like these emotions that I've never been able to express or these, the uh, whatever yearnings I had, they're being expressed mm -hmm. by these writers. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's so intriguing that i've never read tom sawyer and during covid i i had never read huck finn i read huck finn during covid for the first time which was glorious to read because well, huck i mean it's a better book by the way than tom sawyer. is it yeah and it's it's just i, I it, love tom sawyer in many ways but huck finn yeah. is grander it's a bigger thing and it's it's just uh, i i don't know if i would have enjoyed it when i was young I think I, I think I really got to take it in now after writing for years and after just, you know, just uh, being essentially uh, writing and storytelling is like my religion now. So it's, mm -hmm. that's uh, everything I crave. And so to read it now just felt, it felt important and it was cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Huck Finn is, is, is um, it's a bit of a mess uh, structurally. And in fact, he stopped writing and then went back and wrote the end. You know, it has, it has this big different kind of end. There's this whole sort of demarcation. Uh, Jim, uh, spoiler alert, Jim gets caught. And, uh, but Tom is rich and he has the money to liberate him eventually. Um, and the, the, the whole plot of Tom Sawyer is much neater, much more... Uh, 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 in integrated and integral um and and it is the plot of america it, it's a boy he loves a girl uh there's somebody violent who tries to kill him but fails they get lost in a cave and he finds you know a million bucks that's the, basically uh the plot and it's very funny um i had to review when early in my reviewing days relatively early uh, Billy Bathgate by um, E.L. Doctorow, which was made into a good movie. It's a great book. It's a really fine book. But the reviewers kept saying, oh, it's, it's, it's uh, inspired by Huck Finn. And it wasn't inspired by Huck Finn at all. It was the total Tom Sawyer story. 
um, Billy Bathgate finds, uh, you know, uh, Dutch Schultz's money at the end of the book hidden, you know, and, and the, the money hidden in Tom Sawyer in the cave is criminal money that has been, you know, lost and abandoned by the dead criminal. And uh, Dutch Schultz's um, last words became very famous. The cops recorded him in a fever for days and days talking and talking because they wanted to find where the money was and they never did. And it's sort of mythical. And uh, in Billy Bathgate, uh, the young Billy Bathgate, he's like 13 or 15 by the time Dutch Schultz dies. Um, and he has to go out a window and it's just like going in through the cave and he finds the money and then he's rich. And that's the end of the book. And it's just, you know, it's Tom Sawyer absolutely through and through. And, and it re- drove me nuts that everyone was telling it, saying it was Huck Finn when it wasn't anything like Huck Finn. But anyhow, um, the the plot is neat, but the writing of Huck Finn is inspired. It's just inspired. Yeah. It's a, and it's a, and an intrigue. I mean, I read other Twain before I actually got back to those. And it's so intriguing that he, uh, what was it in the late 1800s? He like went on tour almost like a, as a stand-up comic yeah. taking ships to, yeah, I think he, I think he needed the money essentially, if I yes. remember right. He went broke twice, I think, and had to recoup um, yeah. with these wild investments and things that almost were profitable and then weren't, and then were profitable, but you know, later after he died. Um, so yeah, he went broke and he would go on tour. Exactly. And he, he was, and then um, Hal Holbrook, who played, you know, follow the money. He, he played uh, uh, the guy in, in, uh, in uh, uh, All the President's Men who said, you know, Deep Throat. He played, Hal Holbrook played Deep Throat. You only heard the voice and saw the silhouette, but that was Hal Holbrook. Um, he was a very well-known actor. He made uh, a career of redoing the Twain one-man shows. And he did them all over the world, actually. Huh. Um, but Twain got that from Dickens. Dickens made a fortune coming to the U.S. and elsewhere. Oh, wow. Uh, doing these one-man shows also. Yeah. Huh. Back, back in the day when authors can make fortunes doing yeah, one-man right. shows. Right. Or <laughs> no. one-man typing, even. You know, that was so great. Now we go to a bookstore and hope eight people show up to get it, our yeah, book right. signed, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How, um, the, the, uh, this is, I feel like your book is a love story to New York as well as just a love story. Yeah. I, I mean, I think or I'm wrong. Tell, tell me I'm wrong and I'm fine. No, with you're that. not wrong at all. <laughs> matter of fact, a number of people who have critiqued it have said that, you know, New York is more tangible than the characters are. Um, and you're I, like, thanks a lot. I worked so hard on those characters. <laughs> Well, I, I don't actually agree with that critique, but yeah, um, my intention was to write about what New York was like when I arrived in it uh, from the suburbs in 1975. Um, it starts in 76 at the Bicentennial celebrations uh, downtown uh, beneath the world, the new World Trade Towers. Um, they had a massive fireworks thing down in the harbor uh, that night. And that's where the book starts. And um, yeah, so the only thing that guided me was just, I wanted to move through time and sort of, I, I, I tracked these two people's lives and, uh, but it's, these two people's lives are taking place 
in a context of a, of a ever changing New York um, that I myself lived in and lived through. And, um, and so that's, you know, there are three parallel lives as it were, three parallel characters. Um, and it's true, I do love the place. Um, it's been changed by money and then by COVID. Uh, it's been changed rather radically. Um, but uh, that's the thing about New York. It always changes. It's constantly changing. It, it's, like, it's, like, it's like living, you know, under um, a volcano that's constantly, you know, burping up a few, you know, scary things and, uh, you know, letting you live on, but just barely. <laughs> The um, well, some you know sometimes with COVID, which you know, which is utterly devastating, I feel like there's you know maybe places like New York maybe reset to be in a very like I and I and I'm I've only I have very little relationship with New York, but I feel like it could be a um as someone in San Francisco where I saw San Francisco change monumentally from the eighties to the nineties to the what happened in San Francisco. Right. And, and, you know, early days there's frustrations, but then I listened to my grandparents all mad that the yuppies were moving into their working class neighborhood in the early 1980s. And the, and the narrative just continues on. It's, I don't think there's Mm -hmm. any way to stop the change, but with, um, with something like COVID, it's it's almost it, it's almost the opportunity i i don't know tell me it's is it the opportunity for a reset that could really bring new york kind of to 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 what to kind of what's important the arts and culture can are we gonna is that the is that one of the narratives that can come out of this uh you know there is this there is a kind of um a, a common perception among people who've been there a long time that the, the, the flavor and uh, look of the 70s is creeping back in. You know, there's a lot more uh, uh, street people and a lot more grime and a lot more, you know, it's a lot less glitzy. And, uh, uh, but in fact, the rents have not gone down all that much. And the fact of the matter is that arts, the way the arts flourished in New York in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s uh, and into the early 80s, had to do with, you know, when I got out of college, you could have a part-time job in a photocopy shop and rent your own apartment on the Upper West Side and go out with your friends uh, and drink beer and have burgers and go to the movies and pay your rent. Um, and you didn't have massive college debt and, and you didn't need to work for a corporation. Um, can, can I just stop right there yeah. and just breathe that in? wow (laughs) right exactly no exactly and but when i was teaching um uh uh, uh, i was teaching a seminar for 10 years a freshman seminar at nyu called the writer in new york and i would talk about this and i would say what does that mean that means freedom that's freedom and you don't have it you know you guys do not have that. As a matter of fact, I remember one class, I, I, I came in, I was in a fury because uh, I, I had moved up to New Rochelle in, in 2012, um, 2009 actually. And um, uh, I had married again and we had a baby and 
my wife's people are from here and it seems sensible to move here. And, uh, and I had grown up in the suburbs and now I've moved back 35 years later, but I didn't grow up in these suburbs, but I grew up in suburbs and these are suburbs. And th these are the suburbs of the Dick Van Dyke show, by the way, he was, he lived in New Rochelle. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, oh, there was, there was another, there's another new Rochelle reference that I've heard kind of recently. Oh, 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 the apartment, the movie, the apartment with Jack Lemon. Oh, really? The, the executives were all taking the train back to New Rochelle, oh, and in order funny. to cheat on their wives, they had to use Jack so, Lemon's yeah. bachelor pad in Manhattan. Yes, right, right, right. I, I remember the premise. I didn't remember that they are all going to New Rochelle. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was that kind of town. Uh, Carl uh, Reiner lived here, that, and he created the Dick Van Dyke Show, and that's why Dick Van Dyke lived in New Rochelle. But and Carl Reiner played the occasionally seen only from the back. Uh, whatever his name, Brady, who, who they were all Alan, Alan Brady, right? Right. Yeah. And they were working on a show that was like Sid Caesar's show of shows. And, and that's where Reiner got his start. And he created this sitcom based on the writer's room, which was much wilder and bigger than the one he put on the show. But in any case, it was, it was all a facsimile of that. And he lived in New Rochelle. So he had Dick Van Dyke live in New Rochelle. So it, it, New Rochelle was synonymous with Dick Van Dyke show for some reason. But in any case, I moved up here. So I'm taking the, the Metro North train into the city to teach this course at NYU. And I'm sitting one day in the seat that faces the divider where the, you go to the doors to exit. And on those are these posters, ad, you know, ads. And this ad was for one of the mattress chains that you would go to, like Sleepies or something. I think it was higher end than Sleepies. Sleepies, forgive me. So... Um, it, it has this body in, in bed. Um, you can't quite tell if it's a man or a woman, you know, the covers are up over the head kind of, and it's like very like, like this, this is a person who is asleep and been thrashing around and it's under the sheet. And it said, if you had this, you know, XO2 mattress, you would have made the 615 AM <laughs> they mean. Yeah. So I went in my class and this made me furious. And I drew it on the board. I drew the ad and I wrote the words. I said, what does this mean? Who goes to work at 615? And they started saying, well, people in finance who want to catch up with the markets overseas. And I said, slaves go to work at 615. Slaves go to work at 615. Master comes down the stairs at nine o'clock. His breakfast is ready. All the business is underway. Everything's operating smoothly because the slaves got up at 615 and caught the train to make sure that it was all working right. That's who goes to work at 6.15. And they were like, shocked, shocked at this, you know, at the thought that, in fact, there is no morality to going to work at 6.15. You're a goddamn slave if you're going to work at 6.15. You know, that's right. in, in the 70s guys view. Yeah. You know, in the yeah. New York that I came out of. And it, and it's and that's this you know the the beauty of the New York that you were in where you can actually be a writer you can enjoy the arts you can sit at a cafe and read a book for the day and not worry that your rent is not getting paid because you're not doing two different bartending shifts across town and yeah it's the hustle the hustle culture is um is isn't great it's not great no I'll tell you something else when I went to. I, I, the book is set on the Columbia campus. I went to Columbia. I, I had came out of a working class world. They were looking for 
uh, Outerboro uh, Catholic high school kids because they had, I swear to God, this was specifically said in a New York Times article about admissions. There was a New York Times Magazine piece like going through the admissions process with the Columbia. They had too many Jews. And so they, it was like 75% Jewish, the college, the undergraduate college, and they got it down to like 50%. And one of the ways was admitting people like me who were mediocre performers out of the Catholic schools in the outer boroughs um, because we would never riot. They'd had three riots in six years and uh, th they were done with that. They didn't want to see it anymore. And, and of course, the rioters were all upper middle class, you know, people who were trained to read and think, and, you know what I mean, and, and be independent minded, i.e. Jewish people. And they wanted fewer of them and more of us who would drink beer and, and shut the fuck up, you know, pardon my language. And um, kind of not question authority, right. essentially. That's exactly. And when I got there, they assigned me uh, as my <clears throat> academic advisor, the head of financial aid, because I was on full financial aid and they didn't think I had any academic potential whatsoever. So I was sent to the head of financial aid to be my advisor. I went to him. And he said, well, you'll never be more than a B student, B plus student around here. And I said, thank you, that's great. And I never went back. I forged his signature there and after. And then I forged other signatures as I was supposed to have declared a major, but I never declared a major. And the point, be, I, so I never had an advisor, um, but uh, luckily for me, I became Edward Said's doorman one summer and I met Edward Said and that was a sort of life-changing experience for me um he was my advisor i suppose uh, and and school me on who that is because uh, i'm not familiar oh edward saeed um was a palestinian american who grew up in cairo because his family was driven out of jerusalem after 48 and became probably the most prominent uh, palestinian in the world during his time but he was in he was a, a, an English uh, literature scholar and critic who then ultimately wrote a book that very summer that I was working in, as the doorman in his lobby, the book was about to come out. It was called Orientalism and it changed literary studies. It changed cultural studies. It changed the humanities completely. It was a totally revolutionary book in which he pointed out that the literature and the arts were supporting were a natural outcropping of, 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 of a colonialist culture. And they viewed, and the artists, you know, couldn't help themselves. They viewed the, um, particularly the Middle East, which is where he was from, uh, in, in terms that were completely European and, and, and American in, in context and outlook. Um, <clears throat> and it was an enormously influential book, but he was, um, he loved, even the people he critiqued in, in Orientalism and later, uh, he loved, like he loved Joseph Conrad, whose Heart of Darkness, he, you know, obviously, I, I mean, he had written his thesis on Conrad and Heart of Darkness, but um, he loved Conrad, but I mean, Conrad was an example of someone who was, you know, toying around with, colonial uh, events and colonial activities. And, and, and as far as say he was here, not getting them right, although he got them more right than most other Europeans. Um, 
but he never brought that into the classroom. He was, he was the greatest literary mind I was ever in the presence of by a mile. I mean, just phenomenal. And, and you would leave class like, like in a, in a state, you know, like your heart rate would be, you know, it would just, it was a phenomenal experience um, studying with him. So he, he was my advisor after I was not gonna be a, anything but a B plus student around here. And as it turned out, they changed computer systems uh, and I had to go back and take a course to get my degree because I was three credits short and they had changed over. It was between 1980 when I finished and 1984, I went back and took the course, they changed over. So I took a course, I got an A, I got a 4.0 on the course. And then my transcript says, cumulative grade point average 4.0 summa cum laude. <laughs> And they never fixed it because I was, I taught a course there in the, in two thousand and five, yeah. And so I was you know once again accessing myself in their system, yeah. and I was summa cum laude graduate, despite the financial aid advisors, but <laughs> utterly by accident. I was actually a B plus student through and through. You know, it, it's it's so cool to hear about uh, professors and teachers who, when you leave the class you're inspired and juicy, you know, it's just, it's really hard. I, I find it's to find those type of people who are going to, you know, not, um, what do you call it? Not, not, uh, not, uh, not phone it in, not just, it sounds like he wasn't, he, he was doing it for the absolute love and just, and he, and wanted to express that to the students. That's, that's just, that's something that, I wish a lot more people had in, in his, in his late fifties, he got leukemia and he got very sick and he died at 66 or 67. And um, it was very sad. Uh, but before that, when he was, I, I studied with him when he was in his early forties, he paced the room like a lion. It was the physical energy of the lectures was phenomenal. Um, and um uh, you know, it just absolutely swept you up. It, it was really quite remarkable. Um, so he was a great man. And, and I had the great fortune of, you know, he saw me as this sort of working class bohemian uh, intellectual because I was his doorman. And, uh-huh. when he met me, and when he met me, he walks in and it was one of those old buildings where the doorman has to then run the elevator, you know, the little elevator where you, you know, you, you drive the shift forward and back. Oh, you so know, you had so. to actually get in and uh, work it for him. Right. Right. So, okay. I had to take upstairs. so he walks in the lobby and I get up and walk over to the elevator. Cause that's what you did. You know, when somebody came in and he saw that I'd been reading a book at the little table, I, the, the doorman sat at and he stalks over to the table and he picks it up and he goes, what are you reading? And he looks at it and I was reading Heart of Darkness, the very book that he had done his first and most important work on and who and, and the text that remained for him kind of a central, you know, iconic text. So I was in like Flynn, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was reading it because I we had been assigned it in high school and I didn't get it. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I thought I should try this again. Yeah. Got it. I've probably read it four times or five times since, but I, I still haven't read it. I, it's funny. Um, I, 
like when I first read Vonnegut when I was in my twenties, I, I didn't get it at all. I was like, why does anyone like this guy? And then, and then I, and then I gave him a reread in my thirties and I'm like, what the hell was wrong with me in my twenties? Oh, right. Right. What's exactly. No, that's very, happens all the time. Um, I, I highly advise Heart of Darkness. And, and I think that the thing to remember about Heart of Darkness, the language is very thick. Um, Conrad spoke, was, was raised in Poland. He spoke Polish, Russian, German, then he lived in France and he spoke French and then he learned English. And then he did the thing that was unheard of, unknown, and no one had ever done it. He became, uh, and it was quite demanding, the tests and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the examinations and whatnot you had to pass. He became the, a captain for the British Merchant Service, which was the most biggest, most important merchant service in the world. And you had to really know your shit to be a captain in the British Merchant Service. And he became one. But he never lost his Polish accent, but his English, English was his fifth language. And the English is filled with Latinets. It's filled with a kind of, Ford, Max Ford said that he wrote French in English. Um, so when you read it, you know, first of all, just be prepared. The language is kind of thick, but the thing that modern readers don't get is that he's very funny. He's, he's being quite caustic about the scenes that he's describing. And it, some of it is quite comic, but you, the tone, is so uh, old school that you don't necessarily pick up. It was very hard for me to teach students that he was being funny or to convince them that he was being funny, but he was being, he was quite funny. Um, so if you can enjoy it on that level, it's, 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 um, it's a phenomenal text actually. It's really quite amazing. And it's quite short. It's only a hundred pages long or so. Oh, cool. Any, fo- any pictures in it or pop-ups? That's easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> there are um, some some very um, colorful images. Yeah. <laughs> Any nudity? You have, to, you have to do the internal art artwork. Well, how long did you how long did you teach that book for? I've only taught that book three or four times. I, I remember going for a teaching job where I had to deliver a lecture to the faculty, like you know, like. And, and my lecture was based on the fact that one of the faculty members said to me, you couldn't teach that book anymore. And my position was you could teach that book. And, I, and then I taught the book in front of these faculty members. But I probably only taught it three or four times. I mean, um, why, 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 wouldn't, why wouldn't you be able to teach that book anymore? Because it appears to be a colonialist racist nightmare text. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, the N word is not oh, okay. yeah. uh, absent. And, and, and the language, you know, to, pe- to penetrate through and to see that he's being critical and that he's being funny and that he's horrified by what he's seeing, to pierce through and see that and not just assume that when you're hearing these things that he's, you know, there is a, a very bourgeois conception that to depict something is to endorse it. And, right, and right. we're seeing this a lot now. Yeah. But it's not, it's not unusual or new. It's just you know, there's a kind of a COVID like outbreak of it right now. Mm. But the fact of the matter is uh, I've encountered it many times before you depict something and that means you've endorsed that thing. And that means you're guilty, you know, of a crime of some kind. And he's depicting something that's quite horrifying, which was uh, the Belgian Congo, um, which, you know, was uh, uh the worst of the worst of what Europeans did in Africa. 
and aside, if, aside from the slave trade itself, which was earlier, but yeah, and it's I, I and I think when we read those stories and those depictions, I think it 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 stirs us more emotionally to be to be disgusted with the situation rather than someone to tell me, hey, it was disgusting and here's why. Um, what right. it, it immerse us, just immerse us in the story, and and that'll mean a lot more to me than uh, someone just you know telling me what to think well the the book is controversial also because um it's about a a an ivory trader who is deep in the congo and and producing ivory for the belgian regime and the belgian um uh trade company uh, in huge quantities but uh do you ever see apocalypse now oh yeah yeah Okay, that's that's the same story. Kurtz is in the jungle, and and he's gone berserk. And yeah, and he has he has these acolytes, and people's heads are on stakes, and it's just crazy, right? Yeah, but it's eighteen ninety six, you know. Yeah, and so Marlowe has been sent up there to get Kurtz and bring him home, basically, like collect this guy and get him out of there, and. Um, Marlowe is the narrator of the book. He's telling the story years later, sitting on a deck of a boat in the Thames, waiting to go out to see when the tide will change. And, um, and so it's about Kurtz's mental breakdown. And it's about Marlowe's subsequent mental breakdown as a result of the same issues, but dealing with Kurtz. And Chinua Achebe, the, the Nigerian novelist, wrote this very famous scouringly critical essay about no late seventies, early eighties, about Heart of Darkness and and the, the you know Conrad as being like this criminal. And how can the breakup, how can you use an entire continent as a symbol in the breakup of one petty European mind? That that's the central question. And my position is, if you're a novelist, you can use an entire continent to, to, you know, as a metaphor in the breakup of one petty European mind. That's one of the things of many things that you can do if you do it well. Right. Um, but the book became politically controversial and uh, in part because of Achebe's essay, which is now included in the Norton critical edition of Heart of Darkness. So you, you, you have to when it's taught undergraduate, you have to confront these issues. Huh? So um, now, so now I have to get the Norton version so I can uh, read up, read them both. You can probably find a Chabie's essay online and just get yeah. the Signet version, you know, which okay. is four ninety nine. <laughs> as a matter, yes. of fact, as yeah. a matter of fact, I wrote the afterword to one of the Signet editions. Oh, really? Okay. That's the one I have to get. Yeah. 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 So look for that. Because uh, okay. the, the afterward is, is good, actually. Yeah. Well, so what? So after college and you're um, you're a bohemian around New York. Well, what what's the what's the literary scene like? How how are you uh, connected with the other people who are? Um, you know, there was a lot of it, and yeah. um, so there was a downtown scene, and, and that was sort of you know uh, uh, rugged and unmoneyed, and then there was you started to get moneyed, and then. I mean, the Uber text, the Ur text rather of 1980s New York is Bright Lights, Big City by Jay McInerney, uh, in which suddenly it's, you know, it's clubs and coke and girls and, 
you know, and there was a lot of that. Um, did I mean, you do, did, were you into that? No. no. Okay. <laughs> like, I, I, I see like, you know, I see those movies and it's, it's just terrible. It's like, read the book, Tony. Yeah, I know I need to read the book, but, uh, but it's just like Coke and clubs and girls just sounds like the worst thing ever. <laughs> I wouldn't call it the worst thing ever. I, I would think being a black guy in a Belgian Congo in 1896, <laughs> but um, what well, in New York city as an it, artist, it was, it was pretty <laughs> awful. I mean, it was awful from a number of perspectives. Captured, by the way, with ferocious, um, just just uh, scouring accuracy by Brett Easton Ellis in American Psycho, mm-hmm. uh, which is a brilliant book, actually. Yeah, quite also controversial. Yeah, but um, but yeah, so there was that. But I mean, basically, you know, uh, uh, books were hot. Books were selling. Authors were hot. Authors were selling. Um, and if you got in on that, you know, there was like real advances and real money and, you know, not like now. And right. life was, you know, not too bad. Um, and you didn't have to work for universities, which is now what you have to do. So the other thing about you asking if New York is in a comeback is that the artists and the writers and everybody have been plugged in as if, you know, like in the Matrix, you know, the thing in the back of your neck, you know. Yeah. They're plugged into the to the university's world, which means they're decentralized. Um, they all have good salaries and retirement plans and a decent car and a good refrigerator, and they're not going anywhere. You know what I mean? Um, the universities have neutralized the, the need for us all to be together with cheap rents and, and you know, nights out at the bar. Uh, and the, and the cheap rents and the nights out at the bar is where we live and where we really have those conversations and where we connect with each other. I feel like a situation like that, I, I kind of call it a golden handcuff when you have a, when you have a really great situation, a good job and you're, and you can't leave it uh, even if you, you know, you wanted to. Um, and tenure is, 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 an ex, is like a golden body cuff. You know, I mean, uh, you know, once you have that, if you've gone through the torments that they put you through to get it uh, and you have a guaranteed job for life and what, you're going to walk away? I don't think right. So. Yeah. So, um, so. So now, by now you're living in the, now you're in New Rochelle. So you're in the suburbs. So you get to kind of stay on your own. You, you still have your own freedom. Am I right? Is that a good assumption? You still have your own freedom as an artist? and a, Well, I, I never scored. Well, no, I did score a tenure track university job uh, for a while, but I didn't finish my novel in time to be put up for tenure. So I was sent packing after five years. And in fact, I couldn't have finished the novel if I continued teaching. I, I needed to be unemployed. Um, and then I finished the novel. So, uh, but yeah, so, you know, now I, uh, I got the social security coming in, baby. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's just enough to alleviate the need for further salaried jobs. I would, I, I would love to teach one course. I loved teaching. I loved it very much. And you teach one course as an adjunct, you don't have to get involved in all the politics and the committees and, the, you know, but uh, uh, we'll see if that happens. Yeah, I, I love I, I teach as well, just like at UCLA Extension, and it's it 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 feeds my soul. It does, yeah. To to just 
be, you know, it's, it's a shame that a lot of it's online now, but wow, just being in the class and kind of just really having those conversations and really, um, you know, really going over the, the craft. And and, three students, you know, every semester who are really there, you know, for yeah. what you're I mean, they're, and, and it's quite exciting to know them and, and the others are amusing too. It's just, you know, you, you can tell this is not going to be something that changes their lives, but right. Uh, they're amused. You know what I mean? They're, they're happy. Yeah. It, it, and it's, it's good because you can keep up with the language. You can keep up with the, the, you know, the sort of the zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah. For some odd reason, for a couple of quarters, I had a lot of uh, Brazilian students and they were really worried. They, they kept saying, Tony, I got to take a, I got to take more uh, courses on American grammar because I want, and I'm like, no, don't go there. Because what you're writing and how you're saying it in English is so cool. Do not lose that. And that's kind of the um, Joseph Conrad thing that uh, you were talking about earlier, where it's just like, don't lose it. I want to know from your perspective and how you're thinking in English and putting it on the page and crafting it. That is, it, it, that's blowing my mind. That's, I, I don't want you to do it correct. So-called correctly is, you know. When you read the literature of the um, Anglophone colonial world, uh, Achebe being one of them, but there were many others. And most recently, there's a guy named Uwim Akpan who, from Nigeria who wrote this amazing book of stories about, you know, children being, you know, their parents being slaughtered and the children being pulled into the military and whatnot. Um, but the language is so different. It's so important that it be different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I endorse completely your position with your Brazilian students. And it's just, I, I think, speak. yeah. And the most beautiful, I mean, the most beautiful work I read, I usually, it's usually I'm looking for something that's coming from honesty and truth within them. So if they're, if they're trying to veil that with sounding correct, then I think that may lose some of the honesty and truth that I crave when I'm reading something, you know? Mm -hmm. It's still my, my sole criterion when I, I can you uh, leave me be? I'm okay. on the phone. Um, <laughs> I'm only doing one of the most important podcasts in, uh, the, uh, in, the, in the four block radius of East Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, what was I going to tell you? Oh, uh, what were we talking about? Here we go. The, the, the single criterion I need when I start reading and, and I, I was a book reviewer. I reviewed for 15 years. I probably reviewed 350 books. And um, from 88 to maybe more than 50, 18 years, probably. Um, but the single, you know, so I, I can force myself through a book if I have to, but I don't want to. And, and what I'm looking for is a voice. I want to hear a voice speaking to me you know, I, I, and, and if I don't hear that voice, I'm not interested. If I see the typing, as it were, if I see the writing, uh, you know, I'm a writer and I'm producing this text for you. Uh, I don't want to know. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. If it's, if it's just entering your soul and you completely forget that you're reading the book and you're like, oh, wait a second, I'm, I'm with this author. Yeah, it's back. I'm back with Twain. In a, yeah, that voice, that's unmistakable voice. Um, back, back with Twain. I think that should be the name of your podcast. 
And, and as you go over the books that mean everything. I don't, I don't, I, you know, I just want to, um, I just want to write a little more, you know, yeah. not, I, I did criticism for a long time and it was very important to who I was and to what I, and, and I was good at it. And, uh, uh, and I don't have, very little impulse when I see what I, I have very little impulse to do it anymore. You know, you do something right for a long time and it's like, okay, I did that. Um, so that wouldn't be my podcast. My podcast would be something like whiskey and cigarettes, why they work. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, so are you working, uh, what are you working on something now after crazy sorrow? I'm falteringly. Yeah. I get that. I've been I've been falteringly after my debut novel ten years ago, so I get that. Um, <laughs> I understand well, that. This book is eighteen years after eighteen and a half years after. Um, no, nineteen. It came out nineteen and a half years after my first one. So you're doing good. You're fine. Yeah, it's. I, I have a I, I do have a guilty feeling and a kind of a weight on my shoulders of oh yeah I know get that. it done yeah well do I look like a fool am I a fool you know that kind of thing right yeah yeah exactly it's uh <laughs> it, it's all crazy it's all crazy sorrow man <laughs> yeah well you know, that's from Dylan. It's crazy. Oh, you took the title from uh, Bob Dylan? Uh, it's from Mr. Tambourine Man. Oh, really? Twisted Reach of Crazy Sorrow. I was listening to it one day. I went, that's it. That's what That's what I want to call it. That right there. How far were you in the book when uh, you realized that was the title? Oh, it had a bunch of titles. Probably. You know, I, I worked on this book like I had one chapter. I, I, there's one chapter of it that I wrote as a short story. And then I started where it is now i started with something else but i got rid of that but i had this where it starts now so i'm thinking like 2010 maybe and um and uh, i went through a number of titles so it's probably like 2016 before i came up with this title yeah huh just hearing the song one day yeah it's great when that synchronicity works you know um I, I always I always make my students title like, for the novel writing courses, especially if it's mm-hmm. beginning novel. I make them title it the first week just so they have an identifier. And I'm like, don't worry, you're going to change it because your title most yeah, likely yeah. will always change. The, the 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 first my first book was called Violence, Nudity, Adult Content, Adult Language, and then the publisher cut off the last part because it was too long. Um, and it came to me at three in the morning when I was uh, uh, having insomnia and lying on the couch watching HBO, you know, direct-to-video movies, you know, helicopter assassin movies. Yeah. um, So the warning ahead of time was violence, nudity, adult content, language. I went, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the title for my book. Um, So, yeah, it just comes, you know, that way. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's 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 awesome to be open to uh, what do you call it as we're as we're working on and creating stuff. Then we're then we're opening ourselves up to to these uh these little these little messages. I'm gonna sound like a hippie here. These little messages of oh, yeah, here's man. your title. Synchronicity, bro. Synchronicity, man. Um, <laughs> I I believe in that. <laughs> well, it's 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 
that we didn't come up with a word for it because it didn't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's how it happens. And, and, and so much of writing happens that way. It's just a little flash in your brain and you hear a voice or you hear a, word, a sentence, uh, something, an image, something. And, and you suddenly realize that turns you, that directs you or it starts something, you know, or you're working on something and you get this and you go, ah, oh, and it, that's the turn. That's where you want to go. Um, and it's a funny uh, sim- symbiosis uh, uh, um, between you and the characters, because it, it, as you create a character, that character takes on a kind of freedom, a, 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 a free will to be who and what they want to be, rather than what you might have in mind, you know, if you guide them through some robotic plot. Um, so you're thinking about these people and, and they're in your head. And then, but I mean, you know, it's comes and goes and it's, but the unconscious is working all the time and you have to be alert to these flashes of language that come in through your brain. You have to pay attention to them um, because that's where your progress will be. I mean, there are professional writers, you know, sit down every day at 9 a.m. or 8 a.m. or whatever it is they do. And they type their 500, 600, 800 words a day. And, uh, and they can do that um, and come up with something good in the end. Uh, me, I, I, need, um, I need to see a flame. You know, I'm like a moth. I, I need to see something there that I'm after to make any real progress. Vince, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. I had a great time. It was great to meet you. Vince Pissarro on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new novel, Crazy Sorrow. Next week on the show, we have Mike Decapite. His new book is Jacket Weather, and it's it's really good. And we're both published on Soft Skull Press, which is also fun. And the last time I had Mike on the show was in studio at Pirate Cat Radio in San Francisco about 15 years ago. So come back next week for my interview with Mike Decapite. Have a great weekend. And yeah, be, uh, and, and, and thank you baseball season because when you, when, uh, when we get the Mike Decapite show on baseball season, will be over and we'll be in the playoffs. You're listening to 101.9 FM KPCR LP Santa Cruz.